Hey there. Uh, I know this is a slightly different venue, but um, out of an abundance of caution, I was feeling pretty sick earlier this week and I was waiting on a particular test that we've all become familiar with. And so until that result comes back, we thought it wise for me to record from home, uh, which is why I am where I am. So welcome to my home. And uh, it's an absolute privilege to open God's word to you and with you um, as we sit under it together. And so now let's turn our attention there, shall we? Our passage for today is Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. Hear now God's word to us. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague, as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, and the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them, and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified." For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear God, thanks so much for your word. Thank you for the, the, the reality that you continue to speak to us in this beauty, beautiful, illustrative text. So guide us now by the power of your spirit in illuminating your word, continuing to inform our imaginations, enlighten our minds, equip our bodies, and stir our hearts with the passions and purposes of your kingdom that is in heaven coming to earth. We love you and we praise you in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, our King. Amen. Amen. Well, interestingly enough, seven months after signing the Declaration of Independence, uh, the Founding Fathers passed the country's first whistleblower protection law. The government actually even paid for the legal bills of these first whistleblowers. Here's the story. There were 10 sailors who had heard the call to take up arms against Great Britain. And they gathered on the deck of the USS Warren on February 19th, 1777. 
and they felt the need to report the improper behavior by the Continental Navy's most powerful man at the time, a gentleman by the name of Commodore Essex Hopkins. And so what they did is they gathered together and they listed a series of abuses, like a quick temper. Um, he abused prisoners of war in extraordinarily inhumane ways. He was addicted to swearing, was one of the things they listed, and often at times appeared mentally unstable. Well, they listed out these particular abuses of power and they signed a petition, a, a, a petition and they actually understood that they could be branded as traitors by complaining against the abuses of someone in power while they're in the midst of war. Well, one of the men actually abandoned his post in order to take this list of grievances personally before Congress. And the result was that Hopkins was removed from post immediately. Now, the Commodore did not take lightly to this, and so in an act of revenge, he lashed out with a criminal libel lawsuit. Two sailors were actually arrested and jailed as a result of that, and Congress stepped in in the midst of this lawsuit. This is what's astounding. They stepped in financially, um, in a very personal status-oriented way, as well as a systemic way to protect whistleblowers. So for one, financially, they paid the $1,418 legal bill, which was astronomical in that particular point in history. Secondly, they released the records of the Commodore and why he was released. They made them public so as to care for the honor of the whistleblowers. And then thirdly, they passed a law. So this is the systemic framework that not only impacts them, but impacts the whole movement of society going forward to protect whistleblowers. The law reads, here's a section of it. It says, it is the duty of all persons in the service of the United States, as well as all other inhabitants thereof, to give the earliest information to Congress or any other proper authority of any misconduct, frauds, or misdemeanors committed by any officers or persons in the service of these states, which may come to their knowledge. And interestingly enough, when the, inst the resolution was read and approved on July 30th, 1778, there is no recorded dissent. This is actually really rare in history, and it happened here in the United States. And it makes you wonder, why was this law necessary? And it makes me think of the words of Eugene Peterson, this brilliant theologian and pastor, when he says, it is both difficult and dangerous to tell the truth. Now, I've seen my fair share of mafia movies to know that sometimes being a witness can be a very deadly business. And that can be true on very personal levels too, right? When a friend asks you if you like their new haircut or a spouse asks you if you like that new recipe. My kids have this temptation as well. And it's actually informed a certain liturgy we have in our family to help guard against falsehood and encourage truth telling. Well, I'll, I'll often will say in the moment when they need to tell the truth and they're not sure whether they're going to tell the truth, I'll say, when do we tell the truth? And their reply together is, always, even when it hurts. When do we tell the truth? Always, even when it hurts, right? And, and across the pages of scripture, it is abundantly clear that followers of Jesus, we tell the truth even when it hurts. And it will. We tell the truth even when it hurts, and it will. This is really emphasized in the strange but really important book that we've been walking through, the book of Revelation, 
a prophetic apocalypse which is sent as a circular letter to churches in the first century and speaks to every church thereafter. Now, we've seen across this book's journey that God is on a mission to make everything sad untrue. That's the title of our series and our journey as we walk through Revelation. But the prophetic aspect of this book is often widely misunderstood, okay? Prophecy throughout the biblical text is not narrowly focused as future prediction, but also, and maybe more so, this is really important, as as truth revealing in the present that has future implications, right? So every time someone is actually a faithful witness to this truth, maybe even having a prophetic voice revealing the truth in the present that will have future implications, naming what's true, naming what's false, naming what's broken, naming what's needed for healing, suffering is a part of their story. We see this here in the book of Revelation. An early Christian named Antipas from Pergamene, the Pergamene church, uh, was killed for his faith. And what is he called? If you look in Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, he is called by Jesus, my faithful witness. When Jesus is actually first described in Revelation chapter 1, verse 5, he's described as the faithful witness and then immediately described as the firstborn of the dead. And following Jesus, we tell the truth, even when it hurts, and it will. And today we get a better glimpse at why, why it hurts, and why we can't keep quiet as faithful witnesses. So turn with me, if you haven't already, to Revelation chapter 8. Last week, we take our, took our first deep dive into these cycles of seven. There are three cycles of seven here in this central section of the book of Revelation. And they really unpack God's judgment on the world. And we talked a little bit about that. We've seen in these cycles of seven, there's a recapitulation, a repeating movement with increased intensity. And actually with each of these, we have layered clarity. More and more clarity is given as more and more intensity is displayed. The seven seals we saw last week, now we step into the seven trumpets. And when we come to chapter 8, we see the first four trumpets. And in these first four trumpets, it's kind of the same old, same old. Judgment, judgment, and more judgment. And it resounds on the earth. And then there's this eagle that starts to talk. And then there's a star that falls from heaven that's holding keys to a bottomless pit. And you're kind of thinking, okay, where is this going? Well, this is where we take our quick little sidestep to kind of help us better understand how to read this particular genre. We've been noticing different tools along the way. And as we come to apocalyptic genre, we need to understand that apocalyptic, it's a much more like Van Gogh and less like Google Maps. It's much more like Van Gogh's Starry Night and all its beauty and less like Google Maps in that it elicits feelings And it stirs our imagination rather than giving us a step-by-step directive in a journey. And so you may be asking the question, well, why doesn't Revelation just tell us? I want to know where things are going. Why is it making it so complex? Well, it's because Revelation isn't interested in the same sort of modern Western uh, question begging that we often bring. We just want information. We love ideas. And we just exclusively want to have the information so that we can twist it and form it to carry on lives as we like. But Revelation isn't interested in just informing us. John, 
And the book of Revelation wants to form us into a particular kind of person. The book of Revelation, actually, it shapes us in the struggle. Much like The Souls of Black Folk by W.E.B. Du Bois, published back in 1903, was so influential that it's impossible to consider the civil rights movement's roots without first looking to this groundbreaking work. I mean, something as simple and deep as W.E.B. Du Bois's framework of double consciousness for the African-American has shaped a better understanding of what it means to live in the United States. So Revelation seeks to shape us in this struggle, to form us into a kind of people, Jesus's people, in the midst of this cosmic battle. So for example, when you get to the fifth trumpet, and it sounds, and these locusts show up. They come from the smoke, from the pit, unlocked by a fallen star. We come to see that they come to torment. And not just anybody, but especially those who already worship them, or worship the beast. And it's this strange composite image. They look like horses, they also have human faces, they have lion's teeth, they have scorpion sting. It's like, what is this? And we need to take a step back and hear a, a strong word of caution. Because we can get caught up in the physical correlation, expecting to actually see these kinds of creatures at some point. But here's the problem. If we actually go looking for these kinds of images in life, thinking that they're actually going to show up in this exact same way, then we'll miss them when they're right in front of us today. They are real realities, but they are symbolic descriptions. Again, like Van Gogh is painting something real, but using the medium of post-impressionism to communicate more than photorealism could ever do. So rather, what the Apostle John is seeking to do in the book of Revelation is show the characteristics of the demonic. He's showing us how powerful they are, how swift they are, intelligent, fierce, and capable of inflicting intense mental and spiritual torment. <coughs> and then after they are released, we see that the sixth trumpet sounds and we see more and more death that comes upon the earth. Now, what's the response of humankind? Look with me here at verses 20 and 21. We see the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues, notice this, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders, of their sorceries, or their sexual immorality, or their thefts. So remember from last week, God is allowing humankind to experience the destructive consequences of their sin to rouse them from their slumber. God's not some strong man seeking to force us to worship him. He's showing us a world without him means destruction for ourselves. But even after all these world-shaking disasters have happened, nothing changes. You see, no one repents. No one stops from destroying the other. No one turns to God. No one. After economic, political, and physical turmoil, faces are still set like flint on their own destruction. So hold that thought, okay? When we get to chapter 10, there's an interlude, just like we saw in the seven seals, interestingly enough, before the seventh trumpet. John is vented, he's, he's visited by this monstrous angel. He's got like one foot in the seas, one foot on the land. And in his hand is open a little scroll, an open little scroll. 
And a voice from heaven says, eat the scroll, um, which actually is reminiscent from an older prophetic experience by the prophet Ezekiel. And it's to be sweet. The scroll is to be sweet as honey and bitter to the stomach. Okay, it's sweet and that the truth revealed that John is to proclaim is beautiful, right? And it should bring back to our minds, you know, Psalms that talk about the word of God being sweeter than honey and something that's delicious and nourishing to the soul. And yet it's bitter because it represents the rejection and suffering that will come on account of the truth of God's word that is to be proclaimed. So after seeing um, that there's no repentance, then John is commanded to actually prophesy, to speak truth as to what is actually happening that will be rejected. Okay, so hold that thought. Now we get to chapter 11, and John measures the heavenly temple. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And then he sees two witnesses. Commentators disagree with... um, So many of the details around these two witnesses, but most agree that these two witnesses, whether they are literal or not, actually represent the churches. They may be two future individuals eventually at the heightened um, reality of the brokenness of our world, and possibly in the style of Elijah and Moses. But a more helpful understanding is that they also represent the church now. One reason is that these witnesses, as you heard read here just a minute ago, are called two lampstands there in verse 4 of chapter 11. The only time the lampstand imagery is used in Revelation is to highlight whole churches. And then you ask yourself, well, why two? Um, Well, in Mosaic law, any legal case required two witnesses to provide reliability to the witness's testimony. So after these witnesses give the testimony of Jesus, there's divine protection over them in order to do that and his kingdom purposes, then they are killed. They're silenced, and their corpses are left on display. Their death is then associated with Jesus's, for for this happens, as we see in chapter 11, verse 8, where their Lord was crucified. So their faithful witness, once again, leads to suffering and death. And the outcome of their death is that there's this weird, like the weirdest anti-Christmas celebration ever. Everybody's exchanging gifts and singing and dancing and excited over the death of truth. So let's stop for a beat, okay? Notice a theme. When chaos strikes, there's no repentance. When John is told to prophesy, he's told to expect rejection. When the witnesses of Jesus give their testimony of Christ and his kingdom come, they're martyred. (coughs) I mean, this is an extraordinary downer, right? But once again, we need to ask, what is being revealed? What's being apocalypsed? being pulled back. What do we to see here? Why is telling the truth so dangerous? It's abundantly clear in Revelation. Here's why it's so dangerous. Our world operates or naturally operates from willful blindness. Our world operates, naturally operates from willful blindness. Willful blindness is a term used in law to describe a situation when a person seeks to avoid liability for a wrongful act by intentionally, intentionally, that's really important, keeping themselves unaware of facts that would render him or her liable if implicated, okay? So when someone turns a blind eye to harassment or abuse at the workplace by staying busy on other work, you know, they know it's happening, everybody knows it's happening, but you just try to stay preoccupied because you don't want to bring it up because you know it's going to cause drama or chaos or could cost you even your job. 
when someone avoids conflict over narcissistic behavior because it takes just too much work or we just don't like conflict, period. It's just too hard. <coughs> when someone seeks self-preservation at the expense of furthering, you know, their own better good, um, or has a perspective that pursuing the good of the world is just keeping conflict at bay, right? Well, stop, stop, stop bringing up brokenness because when you bring up brokenness, that just gets people riled up and that's what's really causing the great discord. The best way to pursue betterment is just to keep the peace and so on, right? Frankly, this is just another way of describing our sinful behavior. Willful blindness is what we do to justify our own sin. Since the fall of humanity at the dawn of creation, we've longed to be our own ruler with our own agendas and our own definition of good. We don't want to be held accountable to anyone. <clears throat> and frankly, we just don't want to get into the mess of keeping anyone else accountable. We want our life the way we like it. And remember at one point, um, when maybe it was the way it ought to be, rather than God's rule and his peace. And this is an essential, agree, an essential agree, ingredient to the broader systems that move the brokenness of the world forward. You see, the world doesn't want to change. The world naturally operates from a place of willful blindness. And frankly, we don't like change either. If you go over to Romans chapter 3, here, Romans chapter 3, Verses 10 through 18, the Apostle Paul reminds us, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Why? Willful blindness. It means we are free to finally continue to exploit, oppress, and manipulate others to provide our own self-indulgences and pampering. Willful blindness, as we'll see in coming weeks, actually sells a cheap freedom, often at the expense of someone else's freedom. Willful blindness is what stops reform from taking shape in healthy and robust policy, when the vulnerable are murdered for another's convenience, then it's usually justified and rationalized away, right? Instead of getting into messiness, we'll say things like, well, they must have deserved it. They must have done something wrong. That's why this hammer of justice is coming down on them. Or we say, well, they're just too much of a burden at this time. I think we have to choose to care for this person and not that one. <coughs> Willful blindness, listen, is the backbone of persistent injustice, abuse, and sin. But we aren't the only ones who actually want the world to stay broken. Broken human beings, sinful human beings, aren't the only ones who want to keep the world the way we have it. Actually, if you go to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, the Apostle Paul brilliantly details out the system in which we find ourselves, but by God's intervention. He says in chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Okay, so there's a broader course of this world. 
following the prince of the power of the air. So there's someone actually guiding the course of this world, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So there's actually a spirit at work in those who consistently deny God's presence, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So you see the complex picture. There's actually a broader course of this world that's been etched out, a natural structure or system that carries the world forward. There's something or someone that's over that that's actually moving it forward. And then simultaneously, we have our own internal brokennesses that contribute to a further etching of the brokenness of the world. And this is why the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, a little further in the later letter, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood against other human beings, actually, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces and evil of evil in the heavenly places. The principalities and powers, what they're often called, had not merely a personal component, which is often overplayed, but they have a macro influence on systems and structures of darkness which is often overlooked by our individualistic Western culture. We often don't like to talk about them because they feel so out of our comfort zone, right? We don't have control over that. So why talk about it? We don't know what to do then with the letter of Jude, which spends a ton of time there, or Second Peter, or other texts in Daniel that speak of these creatures because it's out of our control. It feels weird, but there's just so much more going on there. And we're going to talk about more of that in the coming weeks. Today, what we need to understand is that the place in which we find ourselves, the status quo, is both a choice and a trap. And our world naturally operates from willful blindness. It seeks to maintain an unequal and destructive status quo. In the first century, it was the empty lie of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, that was really a peace for a very few elite at the expense of the majority lower classes, such that the witness of truth, when it comes up against these structures and these systems, actually feels like torment. In chapter 11, verse 10, why does everyone celebrate that these witnesses are killed? It says these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. This is our world today, and it will be our world until Christ returns. This is why it hurts, why it will hurt to tell the truth about Jesus and his kingdom and his purposes that are being either furthered or thwarted uniquely in the 21st century here, yes, in the United States of America. His kingdom is not here yet. Jesus is not yet returned. We are still in a world, yes, our context, our culture, that naturally operates from a place of willful blindness. So what do we do? I mean, one response is, you know, we could say, well, this is just the way it is. It is what it is, right? Um, We're just passing through. This world's going to burn. So we might as well just try to save a couple souls. Is Is that what we actually see on display in Revelation? We actually take a note I think, from Homeland Security, right? Another interesting source for input here. And I'm sure you may remember, for those of you who are old enough, that around 9-11, there were new uh, security protocols that were put in place. I remember learning about them um, when I was in high school. 
And granted, they were fraught with all sorts of issues, to be clear. But it was an invitation to everyone. When you see something, say something. When you see something, say something. And there is a kernel of truth to that for the Christian witness. You see, for Christians today, when we see sadness, we should speak truth. When we see sadness, we should speak truth. Whether it's truth to power, truth to communities, revealing the brokenness that is and actually exists. But whenever we see sadness, we speak truth. Now, witness is not propagandizing or recruiting. It's not making some conspiracy theories. No, 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 no. Here's what witness does. It actually clears the ground. It throws light in the midst of darkness. It invites a many to, to join in on the narrow way of Jesus. And it points to God's kingdom and his purposes, his ethics, and his values. You see, the difficulty with sadness is not that it's hidden somewhere. It's that it's out in the open and most often people just look away. We look away. Okay, so 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 why still speak the truth? If this is the way the world is, um, why when we see sadness should we speak truth? Three reasons to keep witnessing, okay, as we close this out together. It's compassion, calling, and conquer, all right? Compassion. If we have received salvation, we know what it's like to be trapped in death and then see life. I mean, the gospel, when received, it actually builds within us this urge to see others experience the same. And even though it hurts to speak the truth and it invites suffering, we know that the lie hurts worse and it hurts longer for those who believe. So out of compassion, we must speak. You know, so for example, if you look back to chapter 9 in Revelation, there's this painfully bizarre reality that the demons, do you know who they're only allowed to torment? Not Jesus' people. Only those who reject Jesus and so follow the course of this world. Those are the ones they're allowed to torment. Willful blindness is actually choosing torment, either for yourself and the rejection of Jesus or for others when we turn a blind eye to injustice or darkness or falsehood. So how can we sit back and just watch when we have a savior who did not do that? He instead entered into the brokenness, was a faithful, the faithful witness even unto death. There's a mechanism that the gospel puts within us that won't allow us to sit idly by. So first, compassion. Second, calling. We are called to follow Jesus as the faithful witness. John is called to prophesy. The two witnesses in the same way symbolize the church, us, is a representative and an example of what we are to do, which is to speak truth, to be witnesses, a faithful witness to God's kingdom and his king. We tell the truth even when it hurts. This is what we do as Jesus' people. And over the next three weeks, we're going to see how Revelation actually exposes three central spaces where we need to be consistent witnesses, okay? One is in the realm of false religion. The second is in terms of politics or civil religion. And third is in the realm of economic systems. Yes, these are all brilliantly on display in the book of Revelation and John's brilliance and his imagination it's spirit-guided to guide people and so give us a communal imagination of what it looks like for us to be victorious communities in this time. This is a part of our calling. When we see sadness, we speak truth. And Dallas Willard, Bill Willard, a brilliant Christian philosopher and theologian, he quipped that the local church is the last bastion of free speech. 
And I think he was right. We tell the truth even when it hurts. And listen, it's going to hurt us, okay? We, we, we shouldn't be shocked by that. Not because we should be hurting each other, okay? We are to be known by how we love one another. But because number one, the message isn't something that's just said, it's lived. And the message is often embodied through suffering. And then two, it invites suffering and pain from a world that longs to maintain a destructive status quo. But if we've learned anything from the gospel of a crucified king, it's that this is how God conquers. Because listen, God is actually in control, isn't he? I mean, when we see, if we just look here in Revelation in the passages that we've been covering, when the puny demons out of the pit come out and we compare them to the gigantic angel of Revelation 10 that is larger than life. When we see John, similarly to the old prophet Ezekiel, measuring the heavenly temple and the people in it, this is a symbol of security that God has us, that he is protecting his people. When we see that the two witnesses in Revelation 11 were protected from spiritual distortion until they had given their testimony in full. And what happens three and a half days after their murder? They arose, right? This is the logic of the gospel. Christ crucified and resurrected. Not even death can stop God's people. And, and it was then, after all that, yes, 7,000 were killed in a massive earthquake. But the rest of the city, in verse 13 we see, which is some 63,000 people, they give glory to God in heaven. This is how God conquers. This is how God changes. This is how God brings about repentance. We remember that God has us. He has a winning strategy and nothing can stop him. Jesus himself said of his church in Matthew 16 that not even the gates of Hades will be able to stop the forward advance of his ecclesia, this called out community of his own choosing. You know, Tim Keller in his fascinating book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, says God will allow evil only to the degree that it brings about the very opposite of what it intends. In the midst of so much suffering that comes with a faithful witness, do you believe that? If so, when you see sadness, speak truth. Join us these next three weeks as we go deeper into understanding the truth around false religion, around the, around the allure of politics, and actually the destructive nature of many economic systems. Help us, guide us, walk with us to tell the truth of Christ and his kingdom purposes, even when it hurts here in Kansas City. And when it does, let's together live out the gospel truth that even there, God is winning. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen, amen, and amen. So now we turn to a meal. A meal that is an active witness to the brokenness of the world when we look at the brokenness of Jesus's body represented by broken bread. Here at the Lord's Supper, we remember the brilliant logic of the gospel 
on display in the person and work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our King and Savior. Through common broken bread, we remember Jesus's body broken for us, and through common juice, we remember his blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins. If you're a follower of Jesus and you have those communion elements available, I'd encourage you to gather friends, gather family, gather roommates, and partake in remembrance of Christ. And so remember the logic of the gospel that we proclaim every time we partake. But before we do partake, let's remember what's been handed down to us. For the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, ah, there's that witness word, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Eat, drink, and so embody a faithful witness and testify to his glorious goodness. Have a great day.